0: Greetings, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are doing things differently. We are choosing, we are committing to prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships while building a business that creates a meaningful impact in the lives of the people that we love and generating the wealth for us to design a beautiful life on our terms. And if you are here as a first-time listener or a seasoned listener Not only do I have a mind blowing episode for you, but I just wanted to take a second to tell you how much I appreciate you, seriously. You are absolutely what makes this possible. And the, the fact that you're taking the time to invest in yourself and grow and learn how to create a bigger impact in the world is absolutely incredible. And I'm so, so grateful for you. If this is your very first time here, I just wanna let you know every single week I'm interviewing epic humans that are making a beautiful impact in the world to support you to do exactly the same. And I, I my my heart is focused on curating what I call real humans. They are respectful, they are enthusiastic, They're appreciative and loving, and I do a ton of research on each and every episode to make sure that I'm pulling out the juiciest content for you so that you can go out and create a massive impact. And today, this legendary leader of impact is somebody that has actually been on the show two other times. This is the third time we have had him on the show, Steve Sims. And it's so incredible. Whenever I have the chance to chat with some listeners on the show that I've listened to many episodes, I always ask them, what's, what's some of the episodes that have stood out? What are some of your favorite episodes? And Steve Sims is one of the names that comes up. And that is no surprise to me because Steve's other two episodes are some of my personal favorites that I've re-listened to multiple times, just because he is one of the best storytellers I I've ever met in combination with the fact that he's done some crazy shit. He's pulled off things that you wouldn't even believe to be possible. So that incredible combination leads to just beautiful episodes. So if you didn't listen to part one and part two, I would highly encourage that you do that. But if you don't know who Steve Sims is, let me tell you a little bit about him by reading his bio. So question for you, what would you achieve if you weren't afraid of being laughed at? I'll let that question sink in for a second. What would you achieve if you weren't afraid of being laughed at? In the age of gotcha culture, people are terrified to do anything that might be laughed at. Steve Sims is the exact opposite. In Go For Stupid, The Art of Achieving Ridiculous Goals, Steve teaches you how to ignore what everyone else thinks and go for big, stupid, ridiculous goals. And actually, at the time of this airing, it is coming out today. I got an early copy, so I would highly recommend that you go read it. It's epic. But anyways, from from organizing a private dinner in front of Michelangelo's David to securing a tour of SpaceX led by Elon Musk himself, his accomplishments always start with the same questions. How far can I take this? What would make this a stupid achievement? Steve examines famously stupid goals in history, the key habits of successful people, and lessons from his own career to help you let go of your fear and get out of your own way. If you do something amazing, you will be ridiculed until you are revered. Stop overthinking and go for ridiculous, stupid goals. Once you go for stupid, you will open the door to the life you always dreamed of. Like I said, it is coming out today. That is why Steve is coming back on the show for a third time is because go for stupid is available. And I want to tell you about three things. That you should look forward to in today's episode. Number one, Steve's greatest insight from being in the room with Elon Musk as one of his reusable rockets exploded. Number two, one thing that you can start doing today to succeed no matter what the state of the economy is like. And I know it's kind of on a lot of people's minds right now. And as a hint, this insight was gleaned from Steve's working with incredibly affluent clients. I'm talking billionaires for, for years. So what are, what was that insight look out for that and number 3 the incredibly simple secret to making your ridiculous goals possible that steve learned from luigi in florence you'll find out why that's funny in just a little bit that was probably i literally cried a little bit some some tears of laughter as he told that story so that was hilarious so man i am so excited for you to listen to steve sims Part three, if you haven't listened to parts one and part two, I would highly recommend that you do that. In fact, what I'm considering doing is actually releasing a bonus episode where I stitch together all three episodes because they are just so good. And it is so incredible to learn from somebody that has literally made the impossible happen over and over and over again. And so I'm excited for you to listen to this, to expand your mindset as to what is possible from somebody that has created a massive impact and done it in a spectacular fashion. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible part three interview with the real life Wizard of Oz himself, Steve Sims. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials podcast. Mr. Steve D. Sims, the first three-peat guest. The guy that whenever I share and talk to episode listeners about the show, they're like, "Who's who? The hell is that ugly bald guy?" And I brought him back <laughs> a third time. Super excited to have you here,
1: friend. This is gonna be a blast! Wow, the three peak guest. That's. <laughs> look, I, look, I know you. I know your stature. So that that's quite an honor. I appreciate that. It's always an
0: honor. I love. I I love re-listening to our past episodes. So now it's my pressures on me to top it with a third one. Pressures on you. So let's go here. The context of this is you got a new book coming out. Go for stupid. The art of achieving ridiculous goals. And the kind of the basis is how to ignore what everyone else thinks to go for big, stupid, ridiculous goals. So I thought, in Steve Sims' fashion, we would always start off with a strong story that would set the tone for the book. And so I thought a good place to start would be back talking about your friend, Elon Musk. I know that he's personally as somebody that is known for going for stupid, but you tell an incredible story about being with him as he's doing something that is going for stupid, trying to get reusable rockets to work. And you were in there with that while that was happening. So we'd love for you to share a little bit about the context behind that and what you learned from being there for that experience. It was a very
1: powerful moment, and all of us have seen it. All of us can recall seeing the actual fuel cells of the rocket come down and land on this floating deck and tip over and explode like in a Hollywood movie fashion. But understand the premise of what started and created that and then what he got from that. He's a child. And that's what I've always loved about Elon and a lot of the people that I'm very lucky enough to be able to associate with. He's a child in the way he looks at things and he doesn't overcomplicate it. He looks at it and goes, hang on a minute. What's the most expensive thing about going up in the space? One of the most expensive things were these fuel cells. So he thought, hang on a minute, if we can get them back, land them, fill them up, send them back up again. Now, things are never as simple as that but the concepts and ideas always are. So he looked at one of the most easy ways to save money was to get them back. Now you think about it. It's gone up at like ridiculous speed. It's jettisoned off a moving vehicle and then it lands on that floating, a bloody floating platform. (laughs) All of that is remarkable, but then it tips over and it explodes. Now, if I said to you, hey, Do you remember seeing that? You'll go, yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. But if I say to you, when was the last time you saw it? You can't recall. Why? Because the news stations don't show it anymore. Because he got it right. And I remember a moment down in Hawthorne at SpaceX, and they've literally got a control center down there. And they are watching all of this feed as it comes down. And there were a bunch of people at the back of this screening room and Elon and all of these technicians inside the room looking at all of this data, watching the trajectory, watching the speed, watching the volatility of the ocean, all of these things. And it starts to land and we're all holding our breath, starts to land, touches this plateau, and then falls over and explodes into flames. And I noticed something very physical. Everyone in the back of the room, we all went, oh, and revealed, and kind of rep- leaned back, kind of, oh, my God, it's gone wrong. But I noticed Elon straight away grab hold of the desk and lean into the data. And I noticed That successful people, they learn it, they lean into the mistake physically, lean into the mistake, lean into the failure to go, Okay, what went wrong here? Again, it's come from a speeding rocket landed on a floating pad that's like the same size as your front garage. That should all be revered. But it was the gyroscopic forces that caused it to fall over or the lack of them, should we say. So he lent in to go, okay, where's the missing link? It wasn't a total failure because it landed on that platform, but it fell over and it failed. And that's where the education is. They lean in for that education. That was one of the greatest lessons I learned from him. So brilliant. And I think that one of the things you talk
0: about in the book is that some of the most successful people, they're not afraid to be laughed at. We talked about this other story in the earlier episodes where it's you have to be willing to be laughed at. They'll always laugh before they applaud. And another thing that I highlighted from your book, one of the things that you view as one of your superpowers is not caring about how people... Perceive you, right? Like you don't care if they're laughing. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I think that so many superpowers are like, you don't realize how special it is because it's just second nature to you. But like to have the superpower of n- not caring about what other people think, it's, like, oh, Elon Musk can do that. Steve Sims can do that, but I can't do that. So I was just curious, like kind of building on this theme. For If somebody hears that and they're like, how the hell do I give less of a fuck, I guess, is the less elegant question. Like what's what suggestions would you have to give to people? Because that's like a core theme of the book is not caring what other people
1: think. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's not caring or not recognizing. And I think that two different things. I care a lot. Maybe I care too much. But why should I care what someone's saying about me that can't afford me? Or quite simply, is in a bitter place. Because have you noticed that the person that's telling you you can't do something is the same person that's never actually done anything? It's weird. The people we listen to, we shouldn't. And it came to my attention years ago. I actually, when I moved over to LA, this was back in like 2007. As we were getting like 2010, I had a dinner party. And at my house in Hollywood, I had on this table two actors that were from the Marvel movies. Okay, now this was at the time when they were just starting that superhero chain of movies, yep. and I had two of the superheroes at my dinner table, <laughs> and we all had, were all we're getting drunk and we're having a laugh, and I'm looking at this dining table thinking, "Not bad from a, a former bricklayer from East London." Now I I'm cast like you.
0: I would cast you if I had the opportunity. I would cast you as Thor. I'd put you in as Thor, Steve. <laughs> it, it wasn't
1: Thor. There was actually. When it came out, there was this evil cartoon kind of character that had a square beardy kind of jaw. I think it was called like Theos or something like that. Yeah, yeah, um, Thanos. Thanos, they actually, people kept on sending me pictures of Thanos going, <laughs> this is you. Um, but I'm at this table and the guy that was one of the actors, there was we had a guy and we had a girl from, I won't mention their names, but they were from the Marvel movies. And we'd all had a bit of a drink in us, and they went, Hey, we're all superheroes. So, what's your superpower? Let's start with you. And he went to his left. Now, I was at about two o'clock to him. So, I had about six people, seven people before he got to me. So, I'm thinking, Okay, what's my superpower? And you want to say a superpower that makes you sound intelligent, but you want to say, Oh, my superpower is quick wit or being able to see problems that people or being able to scale your business like tenfold. You want to come up with something that's intelligent and I couldn't. And they said, look, if you can't think what your superpower is, what would your superpower be? And then of course you want to go, I want to remove famine from third world countries by the flick of a wrist, or I want to be able to remove COVID, or I want to be able to remove pain. You want to again Sounds sensible. And I couldn't think of anything. I'd obviously had too many old fashions. It wasn't coming to me. It got to my turn. And I'm sitting there going, my superpower. Mm. And my wife turned around. And she grabbed my arm and she went, hang on, Steve. I got this. Now there's <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> nothing. Yeah, there's nothing better than your wife saying something good about you. So I went, all right, babe, you tell them what my superpower is. And she turned around and she went, Steve's superpower is ignorance and I thought shit I'm gonna get a divorce (laughs) she's just called me ignorant in front of all of my pals and the room the temperature of the room you could feel it change you could feel it get a bit uncomfortable and she felt that and she went hang on a minute hang on a minute when has he ever done anything and you've turned around and gone, how the bloody hell did he pull that off? How did he get to do this with the Pope? How did he get to do that with Elon? How did he get to do that with one John? He was ignorant to it going any other way than the way that he visioned it. He couldn't hear the noise. He couldn't hear the chuckles. He couldn't recognize the laughter, the naysayers. He went forward with pure ignorance that, hey, This is what I'd like to happen. How do we make it happen? His superpower is the ignorance to all that white noise that's out there. And she got the room back. But more importantly, she got me recognizing that I do care, but I listen to those people that matter. And the little naysayer, the little gnat, sitting there in the corner of the bar just before they go on that shift of, serving me a burger from the drive through that night those people sitting there going oh you can't do that why listen to them and here's the downside 99 percent of the time that naysayer they live up here in your head yeah. that's the little doubting pigeon that's kind of like cooing out there that you can't do that why are you listening to them so cool. And I
0: know you you wrote in the book that you'll be celebrating 37 years with your wife this year if that hasn't yeah. happened already, which is incredible. So, maybe we'll have some time to dig into maybe the soft teddy bear side of Steve Sims that doesn't come out. We can ask some relationship <laughs> advice. But uh, you were I love that you talked about this whole ignorance thing and I think we can build on this because you talked about that being one of your superpowers, but another thing you talk about in the book is one of the most important things, actually, I don't want to ruin the punchline. So uh, let, let's set I want to talk about Luigi. Let's, that's where I want to get to. So we'll see how I end up, how I end up walking over there. So in our first interview, we tell a story about shutting down the academia to get your clients a private dinner in front of David's Michelangelo. But there was a detail that we didn't get that appeared in this new book that I think pairs with this superpower that, that works so well. And just transport people back. So we're in Florence right now, your client hasn't had the dinner yet. And you, you
1: Tell us a little bit about Luigi and something that he taught you that changed your life. Sure. So in my other book, we talk about how I did it, how I pulled it off. But there was something that happened that night that was pivotal to my mindset and to my realization. And a lot of people know the story of me setting up a dinner at the feet of Michelangelo's David because my client wanted an amazing dining experience. But what they don't know was that when I got the academia approved me for having the location? They gave this gentleman, this curator of the museum, to handle everything going smoothly. So I would say to him, "Hey, I need the I need the piano in at seven o'clock." And he was like, "Yeah, it should be okay." And I said, "And the chef's turning up, so we need all his his apparatus and his cooking tools set up in the courtyard because we couldn't cook in the museum. We had to cook in the courtyard." And quickly shuttle it in. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And every time I asked for something, I got this slight air of resistance and not exactly. Sure, Steve, I'll get it done for you. No problem. I never got that. And this started to irritate me. So on the night of this dining experience, I had Andrea Bocelli in the, in the corner moving around, warbling to try and get his tone right. in quite simply, the worst acoustic room in the planet. You're in a museum <laughs> full of marble statues, and I'm asking him to perform. It was terrible. So he's literally going, rrr, rrr, and they would play a couple of notes of the piano. It would echo like crazy. So they would pick up the piano, move it five feet, sit it down, And anyone with a piano knows that when you move it, you got to tune it again. So they would move it, tune it, test it, pick it up, move it, tune it, test it. This piano and Andrea Bocelli was (laughs) dancing around the corner. And where they are, they'd already set up the meal. So the dining room, the dining table is all set up in this beautiful spread and the plates and the candelabra. It was absolutely stunning. And my clients weren't even going to turn up for another hour and a half. So it was absolutely beautiful. And I'm speaking to Veronica. And on the right-hand side, I could see this curator. And he had annoyed me. Now, I often tell people that I'm not the most mature individual in the planet. I'm a great friend. But if you piss me off, I'm going to poke you. And this guy's over there. And I thought, I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to. I'm going to teach him a lesson that he should kind of step up a little bit if someone's going to approach him. So Veronica went over and I looked over to this guy and I went, Hey, Luigi, come over here. Now that was the first insult because his name wasn't Luigi. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to put him in his place. And you've got to understand this guy was about five foot five, maybe 115 pound if he was soaking wet with a backpack and I'm 245 pound of ugly. So I went, Hey, Luigi, come here. So he wanders over and I literally looked down to him and I went, Hey, that's a pretty spectacular table, isn't it? And he's, yes, it is fantastical. It is wonderful. And I went and look at the view. If you're going to have a dining experience and it's the last time you have an Italian meal, can you get a better view than Michelangelo's David? He's no, it is brilliant. It is amazing. It is, it is wonderful. And I said, but hang on, you got the meal. You've got that view. You've got the maestro himself. Basically, there's the Pope and then there's Andrea Bocelli. Those are the two most famous people in Italy. And that person's going to serenade you while you're eating your pasta. Can you believe this? And he's not. It's incredible. It is a dream. It is just fantastical. So this is where I wanted to give him a little slap just to teach him a lesson that he doesn't treat me like this. I went, so Luigi, and again, His name's still not Luigi. I went, so how come I pulled this off? And this is where I was flexing. This is where I expected him to go. No one's as connected as you. No one's as smooth as you. No one's as good looking as you. Any of those would have looked after my ego and I could have rode off into the sunset. Absolutely fine. But he didn't. He just crossed his arms, looked up to me and he went, no one's ever asked. And I crumbled. I literally realized that he'd got the side slap on me. And then as I reared up, I saw him smiling. Now we went on with that night. Me and him went out afterwards and had a Florentine steak. And we became really dear friends. And I never use his real name because he's a very private, quiet person. And I was in Florence literally last year for his birthday. During COVID, I flew over. He was that important to me. But I suddenly realized that I had got all of the amazing things that I had got. I'd got into the rooms. I'd got the clients I'd wanted. I'd got the experiences I had wanted because I had asked. And I realized that we got an automatic no for every question we didn't ask. And it was as simple as that. You want a tactic to get ahead? Ask. You can't get any simpler than that. I did. And I got an entire museum in Florence shut down because I dared to do exactly that.
0: I'm sitting here like crying because it's like so fucking funny. I love your story. Man, man, it's so good. There's so much... Gold in there. And I love too because like you talk about in the book, it's like you look back at all your other previous experiences and all those are possible just because you asked. And there's this I don't know if you've ever seen it. Maybe I'll send it to you afterwards. There's this video from Steve Jobs. It's a really old video, but like he tells a story about how he cold called Bill Hewlett from Hewlett Packard when he was 12 years old and asked if he'd send him spare parts to build a frequency counter. And Steve got that job at 12 years old. Not only did Bill send him this stuff, but that's what he says. is like, most people don't ask. And it's yeah. as simple as that because everybody has it in their head that there's no way they'd ever do that. There's no way that person would ever connect with me. But if you just ask, like, how simple does it get to do that? And I think it's what your other book, the rest of your book talks about is just like, if it doesn't work out, then there's as long as you're there for the learning experiences, that's really where the magic happens. So
1: absolutely love that. Um. Yeah, there's, the, and I think that's also the issue we've got today is the society. The society is increasing that noise and self-doubt. You'll sit there, and it's amazing, and you can try this. For anyone listening to this, try this. Go up to your mate and go, hey, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? And they'll go, oh, I'd love to, I don't know, play drums with Guns and Roses. They will utter their dream within one nanosecond. And then spend the next five minutes telling you why they could never do it. Oh, I'd love to do this, but what do I know? I don't know them. I can't even play the drums. I couldn't do that. They wouldn't put up with me. I could never do that. We've become into a society now where we are the majority of the problem of us achieving what we want. We actually will put ourselves down and listen to the people that don't matter, including us, in achieving our great, ridiculous goals.
0: Yeah. So good. So let's continue building on the theme of your book, like ignoring whatever everybody else thinks and going for big, stupid, ridiculous goals. Another theme that I saw in all in the first two interviews that we did, and then also in your book is this concept of creating magical experiences for people. And we've talked about some of your events and the stuff that you do, obviously the magic behind that. But I think that this is probably one of the most important conversations that we could be having right now. And so I I wanted to make sure that I set this up recently. So I've been... Studying lots of Dan Kennedy recently, and there's a quote from Dan, there's no such thing as a good economy or a bad economy, only the economy you create for yourself. And one of the things that Dan talks about is marketing to the affluent is probably one of the most important things that you could be doing right now, even if we end into a recession or whatever it is, because it's in a bad economy that you need to be selling to people that, can be, that are unconcerned with price, regardless of what's going on. And so to tie that into your book, I have this passage that I highlighted. I'm just going to read it and then we'll build from this. But you said there's always going to be a depression or recession or adjustment or inflation or downturn, whatever you want to call it, looming in the future. And this scares a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners. However, if you have a valuable product, if you have something that can answer a customer's problem, a recession or depression is going to help you. The only thing that happens in a a downturn is customers focusing on where they're spending their dollars. They know that where their money goes has to count rough seas make great sailors and good entrepreneurs make a lot of money during adversity periods. And in your book, you talk about like Amazonification and moving away from transactional stuff. And you're like the King of creating experiences for people. So I would love to kind of leverage this other part of the interview to talk about how you create those experiences to, not only market to affluent clients, but to build transformational experiences with people. And I thought a great way to kick off this kind of topic of creating magical experiences would be another character from your book, Kenneth. So we <laughs> talked about Luigi. We'd love for you to share a little bit about Kenneth, and then we can dive into this topic a little bit.
1: Wow. So you want
0: me to tell you about Kenneth? We can go into, I would love, if you have any thoughts initially on talking about experiences, or you can share this story yeah. with Kenneth. I'll let so you know with let's where look you want
1: to And I, I want to stomp on me a little bit here because- okay. Yes, I've worked with the Vatican. Yes, I've worked with Elton John. Yes, I've worked with Elon Musk. Yes, I've done all of these fantastical things. But that's not what creating an experience is. An experience is when two people create something that happens that the other person now has a trigger. Now, you think about it. You're driving down the road. You've got the radio on, some music plays. You're transported to a time, a moment, your first kiss the anticipation of going to college your first job a picnic with your family whatever you're transformed and transferred into that moment by that music now Amazon does a fantastic job of creating zero trigger in fact our whole job is to create no friction no emotion no relationship that's why we use them But as human beings, we don't want to be Amazon. We want to be the exact opposite. So when you're actually working with people, challenge them. Ask them why. Ask them why they want to do this. Actually show you care. Your experience with a client. And think about it. When was the last time you had a great sales experience? Maybe when you bought the car. I buy motorcycles. I buy a lot of motorcycles. And my son went out the other day and I was with him when he bought his first motorcycle. And the guy that sold him the bike didn't fill up the fuel tank. So my son got to the bottom of the drive, basically turned left and the fuel tank came to- within two minutes of him dry- riding that motorcycle. He had to fill it up with gas. Now, His euphoria was so much about the bike. He was like, oh, you've got to fill it up with gas. But that shouldn't be the first thing he has to do when he's left the dealership. The dealer should have gone, hey, and I've given you a couple of hundred miles free ride. So go and enjoy yourself. Get used to the bike. I actually contacted the dealer because of he he shot himself in the foot there. okay? and here's the dumb thing. He argued with me on the phone. We sell the bikes, not the gas. Now, if you're selling something for 15,000, 20,000, how more expensive would it have been to have put 20 or 30 bucks worth of gas in there for that sale? But he argued with me on that to such a point, I will never buy that brand of motorcycle because of him. My trigger is I see the guy's bike, my son's bike, and I think the asshole that sold him. I've now got a trigger onto that. So you don't have to think, look, if you buy my product, I'm going to set you up with a a piano lesson by Elton John. What is the relationship and the trigger that you're creating that's going to have them see a product, see something else and think about you? And you summed it up by reading it from the book. The recession and depression periods are not when people stop spending money, but they start looking at money for its value. And if you are ever having a conversation with your clients over the price tag, that is because you failed to demonstrate the value you provide. Every single one of my attendees of my speakeasies, my coaching clients, my media clients, every single one of my clients get to a slight point that they think they're ripping me off for what they're paying versus the value they get. And I get clients going, Steve, you haven't charged me for this. And I go, no, no, that's because it's included. I felt as though you needed it, and I did it. And they're like, wow, you're taking it beyond the price point and turning it into the massive value they get that they can never quantify with a price tag. And that's what you need to be doing with your clients today. Kenneth did a good job of it, and I'm sure we're going to him next. But you really got to focus... Are you creating a transaction with the people you're dealing or are you creating a value? And again, never market your products to people that can't afford you, which is the age old problem. Because let's be blunt, most of us never had any money. So we know how to deal with people with no money because we've spent a lot of years like that. But never build up a product or a service and then start spending energy on a payment plan to be able to afford it, build your service and product that solves someone's problem and then find people with capital that can afford your problem, and a recession and a depression will never
0: exist for you. love that. Maybe we'll leave maybe we'll leave Kenneth as you have to go and read the book to go find out why I asked about Kenneth. because no, because I want to zoom in on something that you said. That was a small little detail, but I think it's so important. And you talk about this in your book. I'd love to expand on it a little bit. You talked in the very beginning about the experiences that that as much as you are selling all these incredible experiences, you're not actually selling those experiences. You're actually selling a reaction. Don't sell the item. Sell the reaction is what you talk about. And you talk Mm. about how really what you're selling is a cocktail story. And so I think it's really important for people to have this insight. So we'd love for you to maybe share some of your insights on getting to a core of
1: what you really sell. I was taught this from one of the heads of Tiffany and I was at an event and they were at my event and someone was challenging on sales and funnels and procedures and how to lead people down to find the true solution. And it was all about the end goal. The end goal being... You have my product. And I had a young lady there and she turned around and she was with Tiffany. And she said, actually, we've never sold an engagement ring ever. And the entire room looked at each other and we're like, hang on a minute. That's what Tiffany's famous for. Rings, engagement rings, wedding rings. And you've never sold an engagement ring? Am I not hearing that right? And she's, no, you heard it right. We've never ever sold an engagement ring. She said, this is what we do. And she got out this tiny little box or something like that. She said, play the game with me. She said, you're getting married. She said, I offer you this box. I open up the box. Inside is the ring that you are possibly considering. And this is what we do. We take the ring. We stick it in the box. We turn around to you. And I go, I need to ask you, sir, what would her reaction be when she sees this? And they open up the box. So the gentleman, even though he's seen that ring, along with a million other rings in that glass box, she's now reframed it into the reaction of how the partner would see it for the first time. And now what they're doing, they're going, they're not saying, hey, what would she think? Would she love this ring? What would her reaction be when she sees this? The Tiffany never sell an engagement ring. They sell the reaction. Now, if when that box opened up, the guy was like, she doesn't like gold. She likes platinum. Great. Let me try this one. Bang, stick it in the box. What would her reaction be? They sell the reaction and the response. They sell the emotional trigger to the product you're going to pay for. Now, you can buy a product, but you can't buy a reaction. That takes thought, that takes care, that takes identifying what it really means to that person. And when they see that, that reaction, the purchase, the payment, the credit card, that's just the fuel. You buy a fast car, it needs fuel, but you don't care about that part. You just know, hey, I know I've got to pay for it, but I want that. So look at the reaction of what it is you're passing over. And that's what's gotta be focused on, especially today, because today, We're moving very fastly into a transactional society where caring and challenging doesn't exist anymore. I want toilet bowl. If you think you have relationships with everything you purchase, I challenge you phone up Amazon tomorrow and go, Hey, I'm thinking of trying a new toilet bowl. Which one should I get? (laughs) Okay. Who are you going to phone? There's no phone number for that. They don't have conversations. They don't have connections. You don't have a relationship with them. Siri, Alexa, we're building up into an AI world where we're actually barking orders. I said to my son the other day, he's 17 years old, I said to him, turn the air conditioning down. We were in the house. He walked past the Nest system to pick up his phone to go, hey, Alexa, turn down the air conditioning to 69. He walked past the bloody thing because that's what we're getting used to doing. We're getting used to barking orders at at AI that we have no relationship to, that when we actually meet someone and they actually care about what we're doing and they challenge, why are you buying this? Why are you looking at that? What would be the reaction? What is the need? What is the desire? What is the cause? What is the problem that we're trying to remove? When you actually start getting those kind of questions, you don't feel interrogated. You feel as though this person cares about you to identify, to make sure that you're not wasting your money and time today. And in today's world of amplified skepticism, you'll stand out as the unicorn. And that's what everyone wants.
0: Is it safe to say that if somebody wanted to apply this insight, that you look at whatever it is that you're selling, whether it's a product or service? And I've been studying lots of direct response stuff as of late, reviewing lots of my stuff. And one of the things that you talk about is that you're never buying the product or service. You're buying a product or service to make you feel a certain way. And so is it safe to say that a way that you could apply this is that you can look at your business and really ask yourself the question, what is the emotion that I'm really selling underneath that? Is that kind of how you would encourage someone to expand on that and then make sure they're more intentional about it instead of being unintentional about it?
1: Yeah. Because if you want it, we've got to build a connection in a world where connections are getting weak. You know, we've just gone through COVID where we've become really bad at communicating. And there was actually something that was actually released that there were people that suffered from social hangovers. When COVID finished and we could finally get out and meet people again, we would finish a conversation and be like, "Who?" we'd be exhausted because it was a muscle that we weren't exercising. So we're actually getting really bad at that connection and at that reaction that we need to be focusing on it. We want connection. As human beings, we want a connection, whether it be with a partner, whether it be with a fellow human being, whether it be with a customer slash client. You can't purchase those. That's what Bloomingdale's trying to do. With that, loyalty points are legalized bribery. If you stay with me, I'll give you some points. But your mates have never needed loyalty points to go down to the pub with you, have they? And when you're connected with another human being, when you actually demonstrate that you care, when you demonstrate you have value, when you demonstrate that you are the solution to that problem that will have them coming back. And here's a beautiful thing. Even when your prices go up, if you demonstrate all of those items, they will stay with you regardless of your prices going up.
0: So I I want to continue zooming in on this because I think this is so important is like understanding what you're really selling. And another kind of aspect that I would assume is tangential to this that you talk about in your book is that there's two forms of marketing. There's aspirational and there's solution-based marketing. And so I think that having this level of understanding also helps you to understand what you're actually selling. So we'd love for you to share a little bit about that as well.
1: It's very primitive. Look, everything about you know me long enough. Everything about me is simple and stupid. I am very primitive. And a good friend of mine, Perry Belcher, once said that if you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, you don't understand it. So I try to keep everything childlike level. And again, think about everyone that we revere. Your Larry Pages, your Steve Jobs, your Elon Musk. They all are very simple within their cause, within their progress, within their trajectory. So I try to keep things really simple. And the second it becomes complicated, I avoid it like the plague. Mm. So you've got to look at what your product is. And you first of all got to identify what sandpit does my product fall into? Now, there are two sandpits that exist, and I'll challenge anyone to let me know if there's a third or a fourth, and I would welcome that education. But in my experience, and I've got a media company as well, we only see two sandpits, and the sandpits are aspirational and solution, okay? Now, aspirational marketing, that is the luxury car. That is the watch, the jewelry. Oh, you'll wear this watch when you've made it. You know, you think about every car advert. What do they do? They show a pair of hands on the steering wheel. They show it driving down PCH. They look to the right and there's a beautiful woman there. And they go, oh, if I get this car, this is my life. This is my landscape. It doesn't look as pretty when it's in Idaho, but they will show you the pretty car driving down a Pacific Coast Highway. And that's putting you in that moment of aspirational i want that lifestyle that's why Birkin bags cartier tiffany if i turned up to my wife and she's probably not a good example because obviously we've been together for so long now but when you turn up with your partner and you want to give her a ring if you gave her up a scrumpled up starbucks bag and in the bottom of the bag is a diamond ring would she like that or would she like the one that comes with the little blue box that's got the little bit of velvet tie around it? You undo that. There's another little box in there. It smells of rose petals because that's the basket it's been laying in. You undo that. You lift out the box, you open it, and there's your the identical ring. One of them is aspirational, and that is the luxury market. Now, solution based doesn't care about that. To give you an example, if you wake up at one o'clock in the morning and you've got a headache, you go to the kitchen counter, you open up the, uh, the medicine drawer. There's a box of uh, headache tablets in it. When was the last time you looked at those tablets and went, I don't like the logo. I wonder if there's <laughs> another box in there. Doesn't happen. When you need your toilet cleaned, when you need your car fixed, you don't care about the brand. And in fact, a lot of the time your mechanic doesn't have a logo. Okay because he solves a problem. So your products and service, the first thing that you may be doing, may be confusing, is are you trying to make your solution-based product aspirational? Because you don't need to, okay? Mm -hmm. Find the person with the problem, and all of that aspirational nonsense no longer exists. But if your product is a, hey, once I've made it, I'll buy these tailor-made suits, I'll buy that handmade shirt, I'll do this, I'll do it. Then you got to focus on the story of achievement in order to focus on the scarcity, exclusivity, and the aspirational quality of that product.
0: Yeah. And I think this ties into like our earlier interviews is that to really nail down that solution is being able to listen to what they actually need solved. Because oftentimes, you talk about how that what they might tell you at the surface level isn't actually what they want, you have to dig a few layers deeper. So if you want to combine those insights with the previous episode of just understanding how to ask the questions and challenge what people are actually wanting at their core, because what they may not even have the capability of being able to express what they want and being able to dive deeper and build around that is just absolutely incredible. So I I don't know if we've already inadvertently covered this, Steve, but another thing that you talk about is being impossible to misunderstand. So I think that is framed so well. So any other insights when we talk about the simplicity, you being the king of simplicity, if it's not simple, you're not using it. Any other insights that you might have for people to accomplish big things by making sure that they're very clearly communicating what it is they're wanting to
1: do? Yes, and funny enough, when was our last interview? What was it about a year ago? I think I, I think we recorded them about a year
0: ago, but I think they came out the beginning of 2022, so about January right. of this year. Okay, so
1: there's something sh- not strange, but definitely not what we expected, has happened over the three years that has changed and amplified the requirement for you to be impossible to misunderstand. We all like to be able to make a decision quickly. We all want to be able to know what we want, know where we can find it and get it, okay? And we get aggravated if there's anything that gets in the way. We're looking for a spoon and we're ferreting through the drawer to try and find the spoon. Whoa, found the spoon, okay? Has basically saturated us with noise, confusion, distrust, skepticism, controversy. We've had pandemics we've had marches we've had protests we've had politics we've had fake news and then in the middle of all of this noise we've got the cancel society the cancel culture and the gotcha society now we wanted clarity before covid we're desperate for clarity today now you think about it three years ago if you were talking to a salesman And they had these slick one-liners. You were impressed with where you were being funneled. And you'd end up maybe getting involved in something that you didn't really want to get involved in. But my God, you were respecting the salesmanship here. You were like, oh, this, this is slick. Where's it taking me? We don't have that tolerance anymore. We got scam phone calls. We got spam emails. We got spam texts. Now we're just irritated. I don't want to put up with it. You know, who's on the phone? Who's there? Yeah, well, oh, hi, I want to talk to you. Is that Steve? Ah, uh, you hang up. We're not tolerant today. More than ever, clarity is king. Keep your message short. Keep it to the point and allow that person that's being bombarded with all of this noise to make a clear, concise, and quick decision as to whether or not they need you. And proof of this is on this podcast. I guarantee you there are people on this podcast that left, just went, I don't like him, don't like his accent, he looks weird, I'm gone. But I never changed who I was. I want to make it very easy for you to be able to see me on the website, see me on Instagram or anywhere you get your social, see me on stage, meet me on the street, read the book. And I want you not to see different Steve Sims. I want you to be able to go, well, okay, I resonate with him. I wonder if he's the same on podcast. Oh, hell yes, he actually is. I wonder if he's the same as he is on stage. We need today clarity. And the downside is whenever we're working with clients in the media, the first thing we do is unpack all the clutter of shit that is confusing the people that you're trying to communicate with. And anyone in marketing knows today, clarity is king. Back off all the stuff that you're trying to do to make yourself look pretty. Nobody cares. What is the solution you have and who has the problem?
0: Another very simple way that somebody could do this is just look at your writing. Look at the the copy that is on your site. Look at the copy on your emails. There's an app called Hemingway. I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, the Hemingway app. And it'll rank how clear and how simple your sentences are. And like the most successful copy, the most successful messages are like literally fourth grade level. Not to say that your audience isn't intelligent, but just think even if you're marketing to a rocket scientist that can understand everything, they need stuff that's digestible because they got a billion other things going on. So I love the simplicity of understanding how clarity is king, as you said, it's just super, super powerful. So you
1: cannot explain something too easy. You cannot explain things too simply. If you're fortunate, and I've had Peter Diamandis, Ray Kurzweil, Elon Musk, Larry Page. I've had conversations where they've spoke about stuff that, whoa, my God, is way out of my IQ level. But they've explained it to me simply enough that I've been able to go home and have a conversation with my wife about it. Mm. And just think about it, like how
0: much you're reducing your capacity if you're inhibiting people's ability to talk about your stuff. (laughs) And there I I just use some big words there, but like you're literally shooting yourself in the foot by trying to sound intelligent because you can't share that as effectively. Man, Steve, this has been another wild ride as always time is always (laughs) flying. And I always want to be respectful of your time, but I I alluded to it at the beginning and now I realize that I can't skip it because I feel like this is probably a topic that you don't get to talk about that much. And I want to go back to the fact that this year is celebrating 37 years with your wife yeah. which is absolutely incredible and I know you guys met really early on and we I, were I know kids. this maybe this isn't a, a typical Steve Sims topic but I want to go here what are any insights on how your relationship has evolved and grown over the time because obviously as a kid you were not the same person as you were back then and you've had to go through multiple iterations of your relationship
1: yeah yeah we'd love for you to hear you. I think one of the One of the ingredients that worked very well for me and Claire, and I'm an entrepreneur, Claire's an intrapreneur, okay? So she gets shit done, but she doesn't need the limelight, doesn't want the limelight, doesn't want anyone to know about her. I don't want the limelight, but I know it moves the needle, okay? But one of the things that I thought was really good in our career that we recognized very early on was how beneficial a good argument was. Now, no one likes having an argument with that spouse. They're horrible, they're vicious. Things are said that you don't want to hear, and it, it hurts, okay? But why are you having that argument? What got you to that point of the argument? What was the reason behind it? And you've got to work on those things, and it's hard work. Anyone in a relationship knows that once you've got over the honeymoon period and all that kind of stuff, The respect. Now, my wife is beautiful. I don't think there's a woman more beautiful in the world than my wife. But my respect for that lady, there is no one I respect more than her. And I will say that I respect what she has done, what she has achieved, her standards. Now, as you get more successful the toys in your closet change. Okay. You want a bigger car. You want a bigger penthouse. You want more motorbikes. A lot of people look around to their partner and go, I want a hotter partner. I want a prettier partner. I want a stronger partner. I want someone that can support me better. They make that decision before asking that person, can you support me? Can you be there for me? Can we together, do more. And I think that's the thing. There's no way in the world I'd have written the first book had Claire not been here. Hell, no way in the world I'd written the second book. I wouldn't be where I am had I not had someone that we argued a lot. And whoa, there were some evil arguments. But it was also because we both had standards. I wanted a better partner. She wanted a better husband. So let's work on that. And then the benefit from that Was our standards grew. And I think what you've got to do is you've got to have standards. You should always try and push the other person, but accept when they push you. You shared earlier a story. I'm really
0: curious to hear your response to this. So she said your superpower was ignorance. Did you get a chance to tell everyone at that table what her superpower is? And have you ever, if you had to articulate what Claire's superpower is, what would you say hers is?
1: Oh, wow. I've never been asked that, and you are putting me on the spot now. But she is like a secret, silent warhead. There is an innate strength in this woman that no matter what's going on, what she's got to put up with, and I'm talking about dogs, kids, my business, me. And believe it or not, I don't think I could be the easiest person to live with But she has a strength to control without you feel as though you're being controlled. And she just gets to nudge you back into your lane because let's be serious. Entrepreneurs don't like to be controlled. You don't tell me what to do, but I suddenly realized I've been doing what she wanted me to do because it's for the best of the family. And so she has that innate strength to be able to realign, focus, and drive it the way it should be going for the benefit of the family.
0: That's beautiful. It's funny because my wife and I have been together since, I and mean, we've been married for two years. We've known each other for nine, and we got together when we were 16, 17, too. And it's funny because it's like, as we've evolved in the relationship and as, my stupid 17-year-old brain was, it's like when you're growing up, you feel like you want someone that's exactly like you, that can push you in all the crazy ways you want. Maybe it was yep. narcissistic for me to think that I wanted like my own kind of twin. But as I realized and grown, it's just like Leah's strengths are so complimentary to mine. And it's so cool that yes. you also, in Claire, it's like you guys play very well, not because you're the same, but because you have opposing skill sets that actually very much together very strongly.
1: Yeah, we've always said that we're what the other person isn't. And that's word very well. Cool. Hopefully, you can tell Claire
0: tonight that it's her
1: superpower if you
0: haven't shared that with her. I love that. So, I will mention <laughs> it. Love it. Love it. Steve, any, I know we're wrapping up here. So any final things that you would love to cover that we haven't covered about your book? And then obviously anybody we're releasing this on the day that it comes out or so anybody can go check out, go for stupid, the art of achieving ridiculous goals to use a little bit of Steve Sim accent there. Maybe I butchered <laughs> it, but go check out the book. I read it. I loved it just as I love blue fishing and would highly encourage anybody to see the incredible stories that Steve has and how he's managed to accomplish the impossible over and over again. Go check that out any other final comments or things or requests of everyone listening Yeah
1: you? the book is not a glory hole of how wonderful I am it is the revelations and understandings i've got that I can put out there for you to tactically be able to do something for you, how you can increase your relationships, how you can heighten your standards, how you can benefit those around you by increasing your clarity and removing your confusion. So this isn't just a fairy tale, beautiful sit down with a glass of wine. This is an action book of how you can do better for you coming from a bricklayer from East London that just happens to be doing some pretty cool shit now. I'm just going to have one ask for you listening right now. And I want you to
0: actually I used the word in the very beginning of that sentence, ask. I think that's my biggest thing. If I could ask of you right now is, ask. Like I I just feel so blessed to spend time with Steve and the other incredible humans that come on my show, but it's because I asked in the beginning and the more and more you practice that, I think it's really important that you get the first few under your belt because the first one is so out there. But once you realize that people will say yes, when you ask (laughs) and that the better (laughs) you get at it, the better that the more responses will be, the stronger it gets. So there's my call to action for you. My biggest takeaway, my biggest permission that Steve has given me is just to ask and go for that really stupid goal that it would be that you want to be laughed at, but you're going to be a lot stronger as a result of asking and whether it happens or not. I just think that's huge. So there's my ask for you, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on for the third time. You're welcome back. We can do a four P or five P when the other books come out, (laughs) but I appreciate you so much. This has been a blast and we'll talk to you soon, my friend.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.